Have you ever heard the phrase, I'm living for today? Or I'm living for the weekend, I'm living for the here, for the now, or I'm living in the moment? Well, I'm here today to tell you that, biblically speaking, that statement is a complete and utter pile of rubbish. The idea that we should live today with total disregard for what we know is to come is complete rubbish. But, let me explain, what I'm not saying is that we should worry about tomorrow. For example, uh, one, of, one of my dad's favourite verses is Matthew 2, 26-27. And that verse says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? So there's definitely truth in not becoming fixated on what might happen tomorrow. But what the Bible does not say is, you don't know what's coming tomorrow, so live today like nothing matters. What it does tell us is that God cares for us. And so to worry ourselves or to burden ourselves of what's going to happen tomorrow is pointless. The point I want to start with is that there are events mapped out in the future which should directly impact on our present. If there's one thing to keep in mind as we as we open the scripture today, if you're the type of person to take note, is this. There is an event mapped out in the future which will directly impact your life today. So time for a bit of a story. Um, 14 and a half years ago, uh, something happened in the world which was cataclysmic. It was an event that totally um, changed the shape of humanity. Um, this event would um, restructure the world as we know it. Well, I say that. What I mean is it happened in the UK and it affected a lot of the people in the UK. I say that. It happened in Slandabia and it affected a couple of people in Slandabia. You see, 14 and a half years ago, something happened that affected us as a family. I remember it vividly. I was um, sat in my living room when we lived in Slandabia and Lisa... Uh, called me from upstairs and as I rounded the corner and met her at the bottom of the stairs she was walking down and she had in her hand something that would change the future forever for us both. You see in her hand she had a positive pregnancy test. She had a pregnancy test that was positive and was tell us that we were going to become parents the spring after. We would be welcoming baby Micah in the spring and we we were praying about it and we, you know we didn't know we were going to be parents for, for sure but we prayed and we hoped that, that that meant that we would be parents. At that point there became a fixed point in our mind of something that was going to happen in the future. In nine months time we were going to be parents God willing. And before that, we were living our lives as a normal married couple. We were working, we were um, busy in our lives. But what that moment did for us was put a pin in the map of our future that foretold us something that was to come. And from that point, our lives changed forever. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but it really did. Um, it didn't just change. Um, uh, in, it changed in many ways. It changed uh, in our attitudes. The fact that I was going to become a father changed the way I thought. It changed the way I lived. It changed the relationships I had with my family. And it changed the way we spent our money. It changed everything for us. And although I wasn't able at that point with that positive pregnancy test to hold baby Micah in my arms, and although I wasn't able to cuddle him and cut him and kiss him and change him and feed him, 
the idea that I was going to become a father changed everything. The knowledge of that future event changed our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions, because of what we knew what was to come. Now, I'm not saying Micah was going to be the new Messiah. Far from it. But it must have been the same for Mary and Joseph. They were living their lives, normal couple, and they get this message that they are going to become parents. And it is absolutely life-changing. But before we start, what I want to do is give a, a quick outline of Peter. Our scripture today is 1 Peter 4, 7-11. And I want to give a brief outline of Peter. Not the book, but the man. And the reason I want to do that is because I want to show how him writing these words is, has such a massive impact for what he says. So the scripture says this, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober of mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So, Peter, very complex character. That's the first thing to say. He's a very, very complex character with what is a really turbulent relationship with Jesus. Although his relationship with Jesus is one of love and Jesus is the constant, Peter is very, very turbulent. He was a fisherman, uh, originally called Simon, before he was uh, renamed Peter by Jesus. And he and his brother Andrew were fishing on a boat. Um, the first time they meet Jesus is when Jesus approaches the boat and they've been fishing all night and they have been struggling. They have not been able to catch a single thing. And Jesus tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And they do so. They listen to him and they cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And the hole is so big that the nets start to tear and they have to call another boat to help them with the, with the amount of fish that they've, that they've caught. And what I find fascinating about this, what I find absolutely amazing about this is that Peter, instead of just standing in awe at this miracle, instead of just thinking, what has gone on here? Instead of going to his friends and wanting to uh, share this news, he says to Jesus, he says, Lord, go away from me for I am a sinful man. In that moment, he recognizes there's something really special about Jesus but also he recognised that he's a sinful man. And the same Peter is one who walked and was taught by Jesus. He walked and talked and ate and spent time with him for three years and became one of Jesus' closest friends. And so when Peter gives us these commands in chapter 4, he does so from a place of deep-seated knowledge. He knows Jesus. Peter lived with Jesus. He loved him. He learned from him. And in the three years leading up to the, to the crucifixion, he, he was cared for, for by Jesus. They had a loving relationship. But Jesus tells Peter that he's going to uh, deny him three times. Peter's shocked by this. He says, no way, Lord, no way would I do. I'd die for you. I, I, there's no way I would, I would deny you three times. But right before the crucifixion, right before the crucifixion, Peter, who loves Jesus and whom Jesus loves, Denies him, doesn't he? Denies him three times. We read in the scripture, we read, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him, that's Jesus, into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. 
And when some of the, well, some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him and seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow is with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. That's the end, isn't it? That's the end of the relationship. And that's the end. Except it's not the end, is it? That is not the end. Because what Jesus does is he dies on the cross and he is resurrected. He dies on the cross and he's resurrected. And after he's resurrected, he comes and visits the disciples, doesn't he? The relationship doesn't end there because Jesus comes to restore the relationship with Peter. Peter, who has denied him three times, Jesus comes to restore that relationship. Jesus comes and says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know that I love you. He asks him three times. And then after that, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. In the Gospels, we read that Jesus then meets with the disciples and he breathes the spirit into them. So Peter, this man who was a hard fisherman, a hard fisherman who has come to grow and love Jesus and walk and talk and be taught by Jesus, who then denies him and then that relationship is restored. He's then filled with the spirit. What, and why am I telling you about Peter? Well, the reason is that Peter from his experiences, knows what the resurrection of Jesus means. He knows that Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven means that Christ will return again. There is a fixed point in the future where Jesus will return. For Peter, the resurrection is kind of like that positive pregnancy test for, for me and Lisa. It's that fixed point where we know that something in the future is going to happen and that should dictate how we live our lives doesn't it and if anyone knew that it was peter if anyone knew what the resurrection meant and the coming of christ meant it was peter so in 1 peter 4 uh, 1 peter 4 verses 7 to 11 he gives us several commands doesn't he but before he makes uh, gives us these commands he makes this statement in light of his knowledge, in light of him having lived with Jesus and his relationship with Jesus, in light of him witnessing these miracles, the resurrection, Peter says, the end of all things is near. Peter knows about this fixed point. He knows that although he doesn't know when, Christ will return. And in that knowledge, he commands us to live differently, doesn't he? In the same way that I started acting and behaving differently and living differently as what was going to be a future father, Peter commands us to live differently as those who trust in Christ and are certain of his future return. For Peter, the relationship with Jesus, who is to return, is the reason we live differently. Now, I think it's really important to point out here that that doesn't mean that when we become Christians, we start living perfectly. If you want an example 
of a Christian who doesn't live perfectly, then look at every Christian you know, including yourself. We aren't perfect. Although we're filled with the Spirit, although we've accepted and our sins have been paid for, we are not perfect. You see, that's the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is a fixed point where our sins have been uh, paid for and that is a done deal. But sanctification is that process, is that deepening relationship with Jesus. It's that becoming more like Jesus. And that's a process. And as Christians, we definitely still fail. And if you want an example of somebody who fails, Peter is one of them. In Galatians, we read that Paul had to publicly, face-to-face, rebuke Peter. Peter had started eating with the Gentiles, and then when he started eating with the Jews, felt the need to separate Jew and Gentile because the Gentiles hadn't been circumcised. Peter does this even though he's filled with the Spirit, even though he's a Christian, he still falls short. So when Peter tells us or commands us how we should be living our lives, he isn't suggesting that we should be living perfectly like he did. He's suggesting that we should try and live a life like Jesus wants us to live because Jesus lived the perfect life. So what did he say? Well, the first thing he says, he wants us to pray, isn't it? He wants us to pray. But not just pray, he wants us to pray and to be alert and sober of mind so that we can pray. We read, don't we? It says, therefore, be alert and sober of mind so that you may pray. In order to pray, we must be alert. Or in order to pray effectively, we must be alert. We must have strong and we must have clear minds. Putting aside the distractions of this world, it's better to be self-controlled in order to pray. It's something Jesus did regularly, isn't it? Jesus would um, would uh, retreat to a secluded place on a regular basis just to pray, just to spend time in prayer with the Father. But what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that we have to have clear minds in order to pray. In the midst of panic, in the midst of despair, loss, loss of jobs, loss of loved ones, in those times when things are black and things are bleak and things look like they're never going to end when there's no light at the end of the tunnel god wants us to lean on him he wants us to reach out to him in prayer so i'm not saying that we have to be like in a zen moment where we have to get our mind straight and we have to get our uh, houses in order before praying we can definitely pray at any time but what i am saying is in the same way as we want to be or we are being sanctified if we want deeper relationship with God, if we want that personal relationship with God, then we need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time in regular and meaningful prayer. And let me tell you, I am sitting here today as somebody who really, really struggles with that. I really, really do. I struggle to pray in the good times, but I'm really, really good at praying in the bad times, let me tell you. And I think that's true of most of us, isn't it? When things are hard, we pray. We call out to God. But when things are good and we don't need God, why would we pray? And it's that relationship that we need to get right. But it's certainly not something we should feel guilty about. In the same way, as I said earlier, sanctification is a process. Our relationship and our prayer life is a process. When we become Christians, we aren't perfect prayers. It's something that we develop and it's a skill and it's a gift that we can develop as we as we grow but we need to i need to get much better at it 
And so Peter's pretty practical with his advice, isn't he? He says we need to distract ourselves from the other things that cause us to be uh, less self-controlled. He calls us to deliberately distract ourselves. Practical advice. Peter goes on uh, to encourage us about love, not only to love one another, but to love one another deeply. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something that Jesus might say? In the same way as prayer can be hard, let me tell you, loving one another can be hard. There are people who are easy to love and there are people who are really, really difficult to love. But Jesus' act of the cross, that one act of perfect love, should point us in the right direction, shouldn't it? It should show us that we need to love everybody, love deeper. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man may lay down his life for his friends. The idea of relationship with God that opens up deeper prayer is the same with us, isn't it? Our relationships with one another should be a reflection of the relationship that we share with the Father through Jesus, shouldn't it? Peter doesn't call us to be um, casual friends. He doesn't call us to be acquaintances. He calls us how deep and meaningful relationships with one another. And when your brothers and your sisters are really going through the mill, when they are struggling, they need your real deep love. They need the real love of Jesus shown to them through you. That's what Peter's calling us to do. But what I love about Peter, what I love about Peter is that he um, it doesn't just command us to love one another deeply. He gives us real practical advice on how to do it, doesn't he? He gives us practical advice. In the same way as he does with prayer, where we should be self-controlled and we should be alert, he says in order to love deeper, we should be hospitable to one another without grumbling, which I absolutely love. I love that. I love the fact that Peter is saying, be a good host, but don't complain about the guest. Be a good host, but don't complain about the guest. Be a good host, but don't complain about the fact you have to do it. Don't grumble. Just, just be hospitable. He goes on, doesn't he? He says how we should be sharing our gifts of servanthood as well as need we should be we should be using our gifts and serving others and we see that don't we we see that day by day it's a grace of god isn't it we see that we see that with sam and, and john sammy and john preaching we see that with the music teams with the tech teams with the uh the sunday school the crash the um hangout the welcome desk the welcome team the tea and coffee rota i've probably forgotten loads but we just see that on a sunday morning people using their gifts servant-heartedly displaying their love for people. We see that, don't we? We see it in the week. We see it in the food bank. We see people giving of their time in the food bank to serve one another. We see it in coffee, cake and company, don't we? We see it weekly. But it happens when we don't see it as well, doesn't it? It happens, we see it with home visits, when people are ill. When people are struggling, when people are facing death, we see the people of the church and sometimes we don't see people pulling alongside one another, visiting, bringing food, praying for, loving each other. These are real acts of servitude by believers through love. Because of the love they've had lavished on them by God, isn't it? So brothers and sisters, I want to take... 
Uh, if I want you to take anything away today, it's this. I want you to live as you were called to live. I want you to live as you were called to live because you are filled with the Spirit. I want us to love as we were called to love because God loved us first. Love as you were called to love because God loved us first. And brothers and sisters, live as you were called to live, firm in the knowledge. Firm in the knowledge that Jesus Christ will return. Amen.